Hello, my name is James McDermott. I'm a writer, teacher and 26-year-old cisgendered man. As a gay man, I love men, but as a gay man, I dislike men too. As a camp man who talks and writes about his feelings, I have always questioned stereotypical masculine ideals. As stereotypical men aren't camp, don't talk about their feelings and certainly don't create plays and poems about them. As a 26-year-old, I feel I've learned and unlearned lots about being a man, but at 26, still have lots to learn and unlearn about being my own kind of man. In this podcast series, I will talk with several people to explore masculinity, try and work out why we love and hate men, whether there are such things as masculine ideals, how creativity can help men explore and express themselves, and what men still have to learn and unlearn about being their own kind of man. In this episode, I'm joined by Nisha. Nisha, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Can I start by asking you to say a little bit about yourself and what made you want to come onto the podcast today? I'm um, so I'm currently based in the Midlands. My, I'm um, an occupational therapist. I guess I'm I'm here because I've got a real interest in this topic. I've got a real interest in my interest. Kind of starts off with. I was I was looking into working with charities, especially around women uh, who have been through domestic violence. And then the more I kind of researched that, and I have a huge interest in, in feminism as well, the more I researched that, as it all kind of started piecing together. And I thought a big crucial part of of that of that jigsaw as such is how men play into mental health uh, in in terms of women's mental health and domestic violence and the things that affect them that lead them to do and and behave in the way that they do when they're in a relationship where they're the perpetrators I think that's where it started from and then I began noticing things within my own life with my male friends or male family members and I, I, yeah I, I guess I've, I've always in a way had a bit of an awareness that there's a big discrepancy between men and women and I never really understood why I, I think there's a big mis- massive misconception still that if you're a feminist that you hate men and it is absolutely not the case I've got some amazing men in my life and I love them and I wish them all the best but I feel like there's something lacking there for them to be able to sometimes be the best because they don't know what that means for them. Do you think part of the reason that a certain type of masculinity might breed a certain type of emotional or physical violence still has that roots in that sense that men are raised to think they can't express themselves through conversation, they can't talk about feelings, and so it usually manifests itself physically? I think domestic violence is such a complex thing, hugely, hugely complex, that I wouldn't be able to pin it down just to that because there are men that are perpetrators that, you know, they have been brought up in a really respectful household and that they're loving and caring towards their sisters and mothers, but not so much towards their female partners. And I guess I can only really talk for heterosexual relationships. I don't know, you know, I feel like I'm really ignorant for saying this, but I don't know that much about when it comes to relationships between same sex. So I'm kind of only talking from that point of view, I'm afraid. I'm really sorry. Um, but no, I think there's there's a big element of control. And it's to me, it's fascinating that most of the severe types of abuse and violence that happen are 
the the males are the perpetrators and the females are the victims or they'll call themselves survivors whatever label they'd like to put on themselves you know it's it's really up to them but there is a massive difference between the the type of abuse that goes on if a female is a perpetrator as opposed to male and why that is it's really multifactorial there's so much going on but a massive part of it is because they feel that they need this huge sense of control and they don't know how to achieve that or get that in a healthy way and it manifests itself yeah sometimes in emotional abuse sometimes neglect sometimes it's physical or sexual I was listening to a podcast with the poet Andrew McMillan who writes a lot about men and bodies and he had this theory that a certain type of masculine behavior comes from the fact that culturally and professionally men might have been or feel they've been made smaller and smaller in recent years as certain movements have enabled other people more equality and so they feel a need to get bigger and bigger physically in the gym but also in the sense of how they behave politically if they're in positions of power or physically within relationships in your own work and reading do you think there's any credibility in that assumption I do think yeah there is a big discomfort sometimes when the gender stereotypes are shifting and I feel like that can sometimes cause a real disruption in some people's thought patterns and in their core values and they don't like the idea that the privileges that they've enjoyed as being a male maybe or being someone who's Caucasian of white skin if I guess part of it feels like they're, they're, that's being pulled away from them, whatever they feel, the privilege that they feel that they've got from that or the control that they've got from that. And yeah, I, I do agree that that can, that can definitely manifest itself in, in lots of negative ways because they feel that the shift in, I don't know, society or in, for example, in, in, gender, in gender roles is, is negative for them. Uh, but they're not really able to vocalise why. So it comes out in other behaviours or symptoms. Yeah, I think that's beautifully expressed. I think if you've never had to question your identity because the world seems built around your identity, you can understand why there might be that that confusion with why there might be that sense of identity politics and people protesting about the self when their self might feel very, very catered for. There was a great podcast that I was listening to called Conversations with People Who Hate Me. I think that's what it's called. And I've forgotten the name of the of the guy that does that podcast. But it, in one of the conversations, he was talking to a man who had left quite an abusive message on, on one of his pages. And it did it did boil down to the reason being was because, well, why do things need to change? And, and this was a, a cisgendered, is it cisgendered male who was in, who was, um, labeled himself as heterosexual and he was in like a kind of very traditional family setup and he's just he was talking about even things like well we don't need black black lives matter movements because you know there's nothing wrong with their lives they're fine and why do we need pride because actually I've not I don't think that the that gay people don't have the same type of rights as I do and it is it's a real almost ignorance towards other people's struggles and just because that you haven't personally felt that it doesn't mean that those struggles aren't valid for those other people so yeah I I really agree with that and then when it and then when things start to change that's when the whole kind of feeling of oh my god things are changing and my power is being taken away because my actions or my thoughts are being questioned and I don't know how to process that so actually it's a really negative thing because I don't agree 
Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's been my experience as well. That idea that objectivity is male subjectivity to some extent in their eyes. And I think it takes a strong, really self-reflective person to go, well, hold on, actually, I might believe this, but what's the other side saying? And how do I now shift my thought pattern, my core beliefs, my values to incorporate all of that? And I think that whole idea of talking and listening has been so warped by social media that instead of talking, we type into a void. Instead of listening, we read and share and ignore and unfollow and block. I, I feel as well that conversation, it's, it can be such a great thing to facilitate change. But I do genuinely believe that people, people listen to respond, not to understand. And I think that that's quite dangerous sometimes because you're not really taking on board what the other person's saying you don't have to agree with it but you do need to listen to understand it fully which again is the joy of a podcast that you can have that kind of unfiltered listening experience where you can't respond you do just have to listen to someone yeah i agree actually you can't interrupt the person that's talking on the podcast So can I talk to you now about your childhood relationship with masculinity and also gender? Let's take you back to, say, six years old. What was your understanding of gender and masculinity at six? My ethnicity is Indian. I'm first generation in the UK. My parents were immigrants. My dad is from Africa. My mum is from India. They had a very, very traditional arranged marriage. So I was born in Greater Manchester and I guess when I when I was six I think my understanding was that my dad was definitely the dominant parent. I don't remember really having any other male role models. My dad was my main male role model. I guess to me masculinity thinking back on it was someone who who has maybe it's quite angry, angry, maybe. Someone who is the provider. I guess someone who someone who calls all the shots in, in a relationship or family. I'm really, really interested in that uh, understanding that the first idea we have of masculinity is that a man is a provider and a man is a father. Looking back on it, I think, again, um, that was how I probably would have interpreted masculinity at six as well, that sense of to be a man equals to be a dad. I guess when I came across other dads, my friends' dads, for example, I would really enjoy how affectionate they were with their children. And I would really kind of love getting that attention from them. I still remember a birthday party that I went to when I was maybe nine, eight, no, seven or eight, actually. And I really enjoyed the fact that the the dad of the boys party, I just remember thinking, gosh, isn't he friendly? And isn't he like laughing with me? And like, he's dancing with me. And I really enjoyed that from when I saw other dads, but it didn't make me feel bad about my dad. My, I just kind of accepted this is my dad and this is how he is. And this is someone else's dad. And I really enjoy that. <laughs> and I guess, I don't know, femininity. My mum's very feminine. My mum is very feminine and she would always kind of make sure we looked presentable when we when we were younger I I look back now and I do think that she was quite hypercritical but I I, you know she was also the very stereotypical kind of loving mom and she showed us a lot of affection a lot of love she the traditional the the roles at home were very traditional in that she was the stay-at-home mom and my dad was the go-to-work father figure 
Uh, my mum was the one where if we were feeling poorly or we'd hurt ourselves, we'd fallen, you know, we'd go to our mum. We, but we were terrified of our, of our dad. <laughs> uh, but our mum was someone who were like, oh, mum's going to hug us better. Mum's going to kind of make us feel loved and all those kind of things. And I feel awful for saying this because I feel like I'm slating my dad and I don't mean to. He's done the absolute best for us in the way that he understood how. Uh, but looking back on it as an adult, you kind of think, oh, yeah, gosh, I, I didn't quite realize just how profound those differences were and how how much of an impact it might have had on me growing up in my relationships and as an adult now. I love that phrase, he did the best in the way he knows how. I feel like that with so many men. I feel they really want to try and do different things, but they feel doing different things is contrary to the performance of masculinity. I do, however, I do like do sometimes feel a bit critical about that purely because I think, yes, the I think your upbringing has a huge, a huge amount of, um, has a massive influence on you. And my mum's upbringing was very different to my dad's. But I do think that there is a sense of duty to yourself and to others to then sometimes unlearn those behaviours or to kind of think, you know what, I can see this isn't necessarily working for my relationships in my life. What's going on? Not everyone has that ability. They don't They don't always understand that, that, they, that something needs to change and that actually that change needs to come from them. And maybe that's because the change that would happen might make them feel really threatened within themselves and it it takes it takes a strong person to take a good hard look at yourself and to go gosh these are my flaws what do I do now everyone's got flaws um but it's what what do you do about them in talking to lots of male friends about this as well kind of acknowledging that you need to change your behavior is acknowledging that the behavior you've been taught by parents or grandparents might be wrong and there's that sense of it's then a having to accept that fact that my dad or my grandpa might not be right and might not be this saintly figure that I've painted him out to be. I think that's just as painful as that concept of change. And that can really prohibit um, anyone developing. I have definitely, definitely felt that as an adult, the acknowledgement that maybe the way that my parents behaved at certain ages, it, it's really painful to kind of to kind of sit back and go, I didn't like that. Actually, I don't like that. Let's talk now about, say, when you were 16 and how the lessons you've learned about masculinity and femininity shaped your um, understanding of yourself as a teenager. I guess to me, femininity was someone who was thin, someone who was thin to be excited, to be accepted as being feminine, someone who... I guess had a smaller build than me. I don't think I've got a particularly big build. I'm like of an average build and five six, and and I've got um obviously I'm I'm Indian, so I've got dark skin, and I was always made to feel that those things having dark skin is even now um is still seen as being hugely unattractive in Indian culture. So I kind of grew up with that notion that I wasn't attractive because of that or I wasn't good enough I did suffer a lot within my self-esteem and in terms of trying to look a certain way and I when I was doing my psychology degree and I came across obviously you learn about eating disorders and it was only then that I realized that I had quite a I had a I had an eating disorder but it was very well hidden because I didn't look like someone who typically would look like if they had anorexia we see the pictures and you think someone who's got anorexia is 
skeletal and ill and being fed through a uh, an NG tube or something. And actually, I didn't fit that stereotype look, but I had anorexia because I was always constantly trying to be more feminine, try to be smaller. In terms of masculinity, I guess, I, guess, I don't know, I guess I was always under the impression that the boys and the men could do what they like. And it was the girl's responsibility to kind of make sure that you you tamed them. Uh, it's really strange to say it, actually. I remember when I was 11, just standing there, and it's quite dark in the evening, and a man approached me. And he basically was starting to ask who I was, what my name was, trying to get a bit more information out of me, basically hitting on me. And then I remember my pet, my dad and my uncle coming out and they had a massive go at this man saying, like, do you not understand she's a child? Like, who the hell do you think you are to talk to her in this way? You know, blah, 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 blah. But then I remember the message coming from one of my aunties. She's like, you do know as a girl, you're going to get you're going to get men like this. And it's your responsibility to keep yourself safe you have to make sure you cover your chest. And I, I was an 11 year old girl wearing like a high neck jumper and jeans at the time or something. And I just remember thinking to myself, what did I do wrong? Why am I being blamed for this strange man approach, approaching me? And I'm being told that I, it was my fault in a way that I should have somehow made myself appear smaller or less of a victim or vulnerable. So yeah, I remember, I remember thinking, gosh, that's, that's really scary. How do I look after myself in a world where men can be predators and actually I get the blame for it? That's fascinating to me and really, really chimes with similar experiences I had at school. Being bullied for being camp or gay, teachers would always say, oh, well, you flaunt it. And you think, well, even if I do flaunt it, bullying me for it is still wrong. Yeah. You, you can't help proportions of your body as a male or female or what you have. And that notion that you must protect yourself so men aren't aroused by you is preposterous but it is something you find yourself hearing yeah if i may push as well that idea of you that your eating disorder might have come from that gesture of feeling like you were falling short of being a girl by not being thin and you were trying to deal with that storm of femininity yeah. so i said i too had an eating disorder when i was a teenager and i think for me it was there was a storm inside me that i realized what my sexuality was becoming and couldn't control that so i obsessively tried to control my outside do you think there might have been something similar for you with your eating disorder in that sense of you couldn't control how you were being perceived by men? And so there might have been a manifestation that in, try in trying to control the look of your body. I think for me, the first incident of me realising that men are looking at me was when that incident happened when I was 11. Steadily, slowly, things did start happening. As I went through puberty, obviously, you develop breasts, you're kind of, you develop the curves, the natural curves that, you know, women have and, and teenage girls have and whatnot. And it, there was a definite sense of, I don't want this male attention. I used to find it really disturbing that much older men would definitely comment on me in the street. Um, and I was... I was terrified that I that this was going to result in an attack. So I remember actually for many, many years wearing really baggy clothes to try and hide the fact that I was developing breasts. And I think there was a part of me that felt, felt if I get thinner, my breasts won't develop and I will be safe because I will still look like a child who they won't be interested in. Oh God, I've forgotten about that actually. That kind of makes it feel really weird to to relive it, actually. 
and again, it came down to I felt so helpless that I wasn't able to control the way my body was forming and I wasn't able to control that these men were leering at me and they would walk past me and whisper things in my ear and it was oh it just makes my skin crawl even thinking about it and and I remember when I was in India actually um another memory that I'd completely forgotten about probably for a good reason in a way but I was in India and it was uh we were in Mumbai I was there with my mum and my auntie we'd been out shopping and we had missed one of the last trains. So finally, we realized that there was one more train. We had just missed the last but one. Now, this train pulled up. It was a small carriage, only a few carriages, but it was just packed full of men. And my mom looked at my auntie and said, are we safe in this? And she said, yep, don't worry. I always go on this train with my son. It's fine. No one will say anything. We got onto this train and within minutes we were surrounded by this massive group of re- quite like big men and they they pickpocketed my mom and they they kind of stole a lot of the jewelry while that was happening i was trapped against the back of i was trapped against something whether it was another guy that was kind of behind me i can't quite remember but i remember not being able to move and then i remember feeling this sensation of someone's hand touching me where he should not have been touching me. And I remember looking up and I still can remember what he looks like. And he just leered at me as if to say, I am doing this to you. You can't move. What are you going to do about it? And I just froze. And I fro- and that was when I was 12. And I think that's when my anorexia started. Just hearing you say you can still remember the face of the man who did that to you, whilst I absolutely haven't had an experience like that and can't compare... Uh, anything I've been through to a similar experience there is that sense of I can remember the face of every bully who said something to me but can't remember the face of every person who said I love you or you look good to me. right right oh gosh so thank you again for the candor that's incredibly moving if I can ask you about this because this is something that fascinates me having a fear of men but being attracted to them is something I always have a conflict with and talking about being 16 and um kind of masking elements of your body as you said you did and I tried to as well could you talk a little bit about that if you had a similar thing you had this fear of men but were also attracted to them I guess um I've never really thought of it in that way actually I had I had a fear of men who were maybe my dad's age and I say my dad's age quite flippantly because the, the the men that were leering at me, the man that touched me on the train, were always older, much older. They were in their 40s. But then on the other flip side, when I kind of started noticing boys, and I feel like I started noticing how attracted I was to them, maybe a, a bit later than, than most, well, from what I could tell anyway. I was maybe 14 or 15 when I felt... Like, oh, okay, that guy's nice, or you know, whatever. Um, I never, I never feared, I never feared guys who I thought were, who were my age. I, I was never intimidated. Well, I say intimidated. I was never fri- worried about them attacking me or putting me in any kind of uncomfortable situation. And I wanted guys my age to think I was attractive. When you're a gay teenager, the the teenage boys who bully you look a lot like the teenage boys who might right, fancy you. They're of all course. Boys. So there is that sense of what attracts you can also draw upon you. 
and even now, I think being 26, the kind of 26-year-old men you fancy can still look like 26-year-old homophobes. You know what I mean? There's that sense of uh, a homophobe look doesn't look like a monster. It's the same thing. They look like a yeah. man or a woman, but usually a man. Um, so it's always, that's always been at the root of the conflict for me. Moving on in terms of your experiences as a teenager, let's talk now about your experiences, say, about around 26 how would your relationship with masculinity and femininity change by the time you were reaching mid-twenties? I think this is when I really was becoming aware and quite angry about the differences that society held between men and women because I just don't agree that women are lesser than men. I just don't buy into that notion. I think it's complete I think it's complete shit. I'm sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear or not, but <laughs> I just did. Um, I yeah, it made me really angry that that was a view that unfortunately a lot of people in my culture hold that we're somehow lesser or that we belong to men you you're never seen as your own woman you're never seen as your own person you know actually all credit to my dad for this and I will always say this to about him he has never ever ever once uttered the words you can't do that because you are a girl he has never said that and I will always forever remember that and really respect that you know, he's not a perfect human being at all, but he, I have never felt that I can't do something because he has never said those words to me. My mum sometimes has, and that's really disappointed me. And we've had some fallouts over it because she comes from a generation and still the thought pattern that actually women can't do certain things that men can. So in my 20s, I was definitely becoming more aware of uh, feminism, of toxic masculinity of um, the challenges that are faced by women in different countries and different cultures. And I, and I, you know, in a way, it kind of made me feel really lucky that I was born in England, because I think that there are some brilliant movements that we've had for women in this country. But it was definitely a time within me where I started having to really face some home truths about my beliefs what they were when I was younger how do I go about now changing that this is when I was kind of realizing within my friends and within relationships you know who are the people that supported those views and who were the ones that were still happy to keep using phrases like man up men don't cry you're crying like a girl these phrases that make me feel very uncomfortable I was really starting to challenge all of that at this point so for me I feel like it was a real real turning point in the way that I thought about the world. I think that sense of adulthood feels like um, you spend a lot of it, if you're a minority, I think if you spend a lot, of, which is a word I'm ambivalent about, I think we're a big minority in the gay community and certainly um, in other communities as well, that sense of you spend so much time relearning what you've been told about yourself by idiots when you were a child. <laughs> um, and it sounds like you had that similar I think I'm very there. grateful and lucky that I'm surrounded by people who do share a similar view and that's not because I'm ignorant about the other view it's not because I don't want to listen to it but I just don't agree with the other view because it's toxic it's all okay having freedom of speech but if that freedom of speech impacts on someone's life and harms them I just don't think that's valid really that notion of freedom of speech that's trotted out all the time I think my argument with that is that it's not free from scrutiny just I mean you can say what you want but expect something said back to you if it is poison. yeah for sure so as a final question I would love to ask what advice would you give your 26 year old self in relation to conversations around gender identity individuality what would that advice be 
I think it would be to not falter, to maybe know that these thoughts and the transition you're going through does feel tough and it does feel like people may doubt you. People very close to you may doubt you. They may question you. They may not like what you're saying. But if it's coming from a place where you think, well, no, I really do genuinely believe this is wrong for me or this is right or I want to make this change, even within myself, you know, hold on to that because it's a real strength and you're not... And also I would say if sometimes you kind of come across a situation where you feel you haven't had your voice heard, you haven't been able to stand up for yourself, that you have all these, like you might have this real kind of passion for something, but someone hasn't understood that and might have mocked you for it. Let it go. It's okay. You can't always be strong. You can't always have that mindset where, no, I must stand up for myself. Just sometimes it is not possible for lots of different reasons. And you are not to feel guilty or bad about that. Next time when it happens, because unfortunately it will happen, you will unfortunately come across uncomfortable situations where you have to stand up for yourself. Next time, try it again. You know, try, just give yourself a little bit of slack. You're doing the best that you can. And I think that's all you can really ask for. Uh, Yeah, just keep going. Don't don't feel horrible for not being able to stand up for yourself or for someone else in, in that situation. That's beautiful advice. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Thank you so much for your time. And your it's been back. great talking to you, James. It's been really, really lovely to share experiences with you and to learn from you as well. I'm not, I'm not um, a gay male. I don't know what that must feel like, but it's been really insightful for me to speak to you and to hear your experiences. And I'm so sorry that you went through some of the hor- horrible things that you went through because of people and and their horrible perceptions. I echo that. I feel sorry that you went through a similar thing. And it feels like we went through those things to some degree because of a certain type of masculinity. But whilst I'm sorry, I'm also incredibly grateful that I dealt with the things in the way I have. And it sounds like we've both become very, very cool adults. <laughs> I, I hope so. I don't know if my niece would say I'm cool, but I... <laughs> I like that you do. (laughs) I think you're cool. And I think you've been an amazing guest. Nisha, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening. This has been Mantor, the Masculinity Conversations, brought to you by me, James McDermott, and Story Machine Productions with music by Jordan Mallory Skinner and produced by Sam Ruddock. We're keen to talk to anyone who wants to share their experience of masculinity. If you would like to be featured in a forthcoming episode, drop us a line at storymachineproductions at gmail.com.